Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put our heavenly on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together, friends. Father, our eyes are on you. Our hearts yearn for you, even in the places we don't recognize. Even in the places where, Lord, we've turned our backs, where resentment and bitterness has, have crept in, we yearn for you there. And we heard some of that in the passage that Kristen just read for us, that there is a deep ache for something more. And we praise you, Lord God, that your answer has always been yes. In fact, your declaration, even before our question, has been, we were made for more than this. And so, God, this morning what we're asking is that you would meet us, that you would minister to us, Lord God, and that you would, Lord, show us that you see us. For many of us come in, Lord, with veils over our faces and our hearts. Many of us come in this place, Lord, wounded, hurting, and hurting others. Many of us, Lord, come into this place weary, and downtrodden, overwhelmed by life. And there are some of us who come into this place overjoyed and strong and full of your spirit. And I thank you that there's room for all of us. And that you have a word to speak to each of us. So no matter how we come in, we want more. And we open our hands to you, Lord. And ask for your spirit to come now and minister to us as only you can. Our eyes are on you. Our ears are open. Our hearts are ready. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, friends. How many of you have seen this movie? Let me see your hands. All right, different question. How many of you have never seen this movie? Oh, my goodness. <sighs> We're going to have to start having movie nights here. I just see this. I see this in our future. There are so many classics that some of you have never seen. This is The Karate Kid. This is one of the most famous scenes in all of cinematic history. If you've not seen this, where have you been? 
All kidding aside, this is an incredible scene. It's the end of the movie. It's where Daniel, who's been bullied his, his whole uh, year with these kids that are, are part of the uh, Cobra Kai dojo. There, there's this, this fight at the end, and he does his crane kick, right? And, uh, and he wins the fight, and it's this glorious scene. But you know it starts here, right? It's, it starts with Daniel being beaten up by the Cobra Kai guys. It starts with Daniel being severely bullied and beaten to a pulp, as you can see here. Right? This is where it starts. And you see Mr. Miyagi here in this picture. I'm sorry, they're not as clear as I would like them to be. Mr. Miyagi here is the one who rescues him from the bullying and who promises to train him. But then if you're familiar with the story of the movie, it takes an interesting twist because he starts to have Daniel come over to his house and do all sorts of crazy things that don't seem to make sense. He's like, here, I want you to paint my fence. And then what I want you to do is sand the entire outside of my deck. Sand my deck, which is on the outside of my house in the, in the back. And then, and then what I want you to do is I want you to wax all of my cars. And Daniel's tr- kind of getting at this point, right? Because it doesn't make any sense. He's asked for training, and all he's done is actually labor for this guy, Mr. Miyagi, that he barely knows. He's been fixing up his house and his cars, and he's like, what's up with that? He's angry until he realizes that everything that he's been doing has been preparing him for the battle ahead. Because Mr. Miyagi in that moment says, show me, paint the fence, right? And he's been trying to, teaching him to paint the fence like this, not sideways, not like this. Paint the fence because that's going to be a block. It's going to be a block, right? Show me, um, sand, the, sand the floor, right? It's going to be another block, another block. Show me, uh, wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off, another block, another block. And so he just keeps throwing punches and kicks. And he realizes the entire time there has been purpose to his pain. That Mr. Miyagi has been training him even when he couldn't see it, even when it hurt, even when it felt overwhelming, even when it was annoying, even when he had no radar for understanding what was going on, Mr. Miyagi knew what he was doing the entire time. And the question that we're going to wrestle with this morning is, where is God doing that very thing in your life right now? And not in general, but specifically when it comes to standing up against Our greatest enemy, who is death. Our greatest enemy, in case you missed it in the passage that Kristen read for us, we're talking about death and how God has called us to train now to be ready for that battle. This morning, we continue in our sermon series through the book of 2 Corinthians that we're calling Unshakable. And if there's anything that would be ready to shake us up, it's that. And so this matters, friends. It matters that we go there. It matters that we talk about this stuff. And can I just say on the front end, no one likes to talk about this stuff. No one. It's hard. It hits deep. It's very personal. But can I just tell you from the beginning, can I encourage you to see that the God who's welcoming you to walk this path is the one who knows that pain. It's the very reason why he's asking you and inviting you to walk with him right now. So let me encourage you to please take the risk to not close off, to not stop listening, to not go to sleep. I, I reserve the right to call on anyone I see sleeping, right? Let's, let's, let's engage and see what God has for us this morning. So if you've been here, you know that we have been, we've been in this book of the Bible for a few weeks now. 
And what we've been unpacking in all of these themes is simply a theology of suffering. Paul is the one who's teaching us how to view suffering. And in case you've missed it, the theology that he's laying out for us of suffering, how we understand suffering and God's view of it, is deeply rooted in a theology of healing. What? Yes. The promise that God has made from the beginning is, I'm going to bring to completion the work that I've begun in you. You are going to be made new. Everything about you is going to be renewed, even if it doesn't happen in the timing or the way that you had hoped for right then. So deeply rooted in this this theology of suffering that says it's not purposeless pain, but there's gain in it. We're going to talk a bit more about that this morning. Is deeply rooted in this idea that true love is unrelenting and transformational. That true love does not give up on us. It pursues us at every point of our lives. Even like we prayed this morning, when we've turned our backs on him, our God is the one who said from the beginning, I will never turn my back on you. I will never stop pursuing you. I will never stop redeeming your pain. I will be faithful even when you're not. Let that soak in for just a minute. I will be faithful even when you're not. Hallelujah. Here's our theme for today. Groaning is how we learn to fight for heaven. Groaning is how we learn to fight for heaven. It's not the only way, but it's the way highlighted in our passage for this morning. So let's unpack that together. First, the context. Anytime we see this word therefore, which in our passage is for, we need to ask the question, what's the therefore? Therefore. Right? What's the therefore? There? So it means you need to go back, which means we need to go back to the passage that Tommy preached on uh, last week or a couple weeks ago, right? This idea that so we do not lose heart. It's rooted in this theme that keeps coming up over and over and over. I don't want you to lose heart. Why? Because even though we have this treasure in jars of clay, the treasure, what treasure is it? It's the treasure of God Himself. The Shekinah glory was the glory cloud that met God's people in the wilderness, right? It came as a tornado, a tornado that blew the top off of Mount Sinai, friends. That when that tornado came and rested upon the temple, everyone was pushed out. They went running out of it because God's glory was terrifying. It was massive. Glory. And so it went from tornado to tabernacle to temple to Tommy and to every one of us. Right? And this idea of God is doing something in us that we cannot do for ourselves. Can I say that a different way? We are so tempted in our Christian faith to believe that we have got to pull our bootstraps up and just try harder. And that is a trap from our biggest enemy. He wants us to think that we need to try harder so that when we fail, here's what happens. We just live in shame because we think God's blaming us for what's messed up in our lives. When the whole time God's inviting us to see that we've always needed something more than just me. We've always needed something more than just ourselves. And that's precisely what God has come to give us in his Holy Spirit. 
I want you to see the purpose of that, right? Again, that, Tommy, that passage that Tommy preached on, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's the point, right? We have this treasure, this Shekinah glory in these jars of clay, which is our bodies, to show that God's the one who has the power and not us. Why? Because in all of these situations, afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, what's, what is God highlighting in that passage? That what should be is not. I should be crushed, but I'm not somehow. I should be in despair, but I'm not somehow. I should be forsaken, but I'm not somehow. I should be destroyed, but I'm not because I'm still alive and still here. So let me put it to you differently. Every place that the enemy of our souls tempts us and our own hearts want to believe that God has abandoned us because we are afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. All of those things we say, well, if there's a good God, he, he wouldn't let this happen. That good God, before you ever experienced any of that, has said to you and to me and to us, when these things happen and you live through them, that's evidence that I have been faithful to you. It is not evidence that he's not good. It's evidence that he's better than we thought. And he's for us and he's in us. And he's not going anywhere. The purpose that he lays out for us, again, we haven't even gotten to our passage yet. The purpose that he lays out to us is gain through pain. Verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 11, always given over to death so that the life of Jesus might be made manifest. No one likes to be given over to death but the rhythm of the gospel, in case we missed it, is always the same. Death to life. It's the resurrection rhythm. You cannot grow. You will not know him. You will not get any more spiritual, any more holy, any more victorious until you are willing to say, I'm ready to die. I willingly die. God will not murder you. But he will take you by the hand and lead you through the grave. Where is he inviting you to stop holding on to the control that was never yours in the first place and to realize that his is the hand that leads you through the valley of the shadow of death when yours are the ones that simply hold on to the lies of death themselves. Jesus wants to set you free this morning, friends, by leading you through that not keeping you stuck in it. Outwardly, we're wasting away, but inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. It's the echo of what he said in chapter three when he said, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. How many of you know the truth that outwardly we're wasting away? How many of you feel the pain in your bodies all the time, right? Come on, the only hands that shouldn't be up right now are of the wee ones, because they don't understand yet, right? The rest of us know exactly what he's talking about here. And isn't it good to be able to see it's in scripture? How many of you were alive 2,000 years ago? No one? Okay. I see that hand. Thank you. Thank you. There's always one in the crowd, right? Rich Kyle. Rich Kyle for the record, right? So none of us were alive 2,000 years ago, but this truth was written there for you for us, for me. Because God wanted us to see that he was gonna know what this life feels like. He knows even before we know. 
But then as we know, we can say, oh, he gets me. He gets me. This isn't new. Like, it, it, it always, it, it's baffling to me when we get stuck in what's called the problem of evil, right? Like, when the world around us that claims to be intellectual comes with the problem of evil, if there's a good God, then he wouldn't allow these bad things to happen to good people. Well, have you read the Bible? Because this very good God has answered that 2,000 years ago before you were even a thought on your parents, before your parents were even a thought, or your grandparents were even a thought, or their parents were even a thought. Before any of us existed, God answered that question. It's right there. I think part of what we do, though, is when we get hurt, when we're in pain over what's broken, that's where we get stuck. And that's where God says, remember the purpose of the gain is the glory, right? That these light and momentary, which can I just say out loud again, when you're in the middle of suffering, trials, they don't feel light or momentary. They feel very heavy and long in duration, right? But he's making a comparison here. So I want you to think about the thing that has hurt you the most, the loss that has hurt you the most the deepest ache of your soul. And now I want you to think about what it would take for a glory to be so glorious, for life to be so abundant that it would make even that feel light and momentary because that's what our Jesus is talking about. Heaven is exactly that. He is exactly that. And more, friends, because your imagination is not enough. But then we get to this point, right? Because at the end of the day, we can talk about all this stuff when it comes to suffering. And we can lean into it and be like, okay, I kind of get that. But when it comes to death, when death seems to win, which this is Mr. Miyagi again with Danielson, right? When he was beaten up, beaten to a pulp. This is what it feels like for a lot of us when we lose those closest to us or when, when death comes knocking on the door when it's imminent it feels like we're getting beaten up and there's very little hope or light that we can see what happens when death seems to win right it's the ultimate question that is rooted in what we call good friday if you think about good friday and easter saturday it's the question that the entire world and specifically the followers of jesus had to wrestle with wait a second did death just win we saw Jesus die on a cross. We saw him get buried. We thought there was going to be greater hope, but we're not living in that greater hope. We're in despair. We're struggling. We're scared. What do we do with that? Well, I want you to remember that Jesus answered that question on that very cross. And I think it's, it's fitting that we should highlight this re reality, right? Because it's in the middle of his own suffering that Jesus shows us the answer to death itself. For, do you remember the one thief on the cross who turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me? Do you remember what Jesus says to him? Surely this day you'll be with me in paradise, right? Let me translate what he said there. Death for you is now a door to life. What you thought was going to be the end or worse, a door to damnation, is now a door to life because of what I'm doing on this cross. Death is now a door. So to put it differently, death now serves Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
Hallelujah. So Jesus, when he's, right before he gets on the cross, the night before, the night he is betrayed, when he's with his disciples in the, in the upper room, he turns to them and he says, I, I'm going to die. He's, he's showing them that with the Passover meal. He talks about the fact that this is going to happen. But then he says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. But I'm going there to what? Prepare a place for you. To put it differently, Jesus uses death to make our home in heaven. Death, which was the enemy, has now been co-opted by Christ to become a means to making our home in heaven. But it keeps going. It gets even better because he says that he's going to come to us when we are on our deathbed. Like he does with his friend Lazarus who's been in the grave for four days. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, this dead man, rises and comes forth. It's the same thing you hear echoed in the Song of Solomon when it says, My beloved, my, my bridegroom is coming for me. I see him leaping over the mountains. He's running towards me. And what does he say when he gets to his beloved? Arise, my beloved, my lovely one. And come away with me. Death is the doorway through which Jesus comes to us and brings us to our home. So he makes our home through death. He comes to us through death. And then it's also the place where he's promised to make us like himself. In the letter of 1 John, it says, we don't know what we're going to be like when we get to heaven. But here's what we do know. We're going to be just like Jesus. We're going to be just like Jesus. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth this. He says, the perishable is going to put on the imperishable. The dishonorable is going to put on glory. The weakness or those that are stuck in weakness are going to put on power. The natural is going to put on the spiritual. Do you see the dichotomy that he's drawing there? We are going to be made like Jesus. So all of these are just ways of explaining and highlighting how death now serves Jesus. What was once a fearful end. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen? Jesus has shown us through his own life and death and resurrection exactly the answer to that question. Death serves him. And this is why we do not lose heart. Because we see all throughout redemptive history that God does both of these things. He, he rescues those who are on the verge of death. And he can actually call those who've already died back to life. He does both of those realities to show us the bigger picture of what Jesus had come to do. And so when you look at David, who sings all these songs, but when he's uh, about how God has done this, and when he's in the face of Goliath, the giant, what happens? He says, the Lord, God Almighty, Yahweh, rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. Therefore, I know that he's going to rescue me from the paw of this giant Philistine. He was close to death, but rescued. Jonah, who gets swallowed up by a massive fish because he's in rebellion. He's running away from God. And God sends a fish to get him. He sings a song and he says, I was down in the depths of Sheol. The seaweed wrapped around my feet and drove me all the way down to the bottom. I was dead, but you raised me to new life. And you had that, that fish throw me up on dry land so that I could go live on mission for you. God rescued Jonah from the brink of death so that he could go and tell the story of a God who does exactly that. 
Same thing with Isaac and Jeremiah. And the stories go on. There's just four examples there, but there can be dozens of examples there. And also doing the same thing for those who've already died. You know the story of Jairus' daughter, right? The Gospel of Mark highlights that for us, where Jairus, who's the head of the synagogue, his daughter dies. She's 12 years old. And Jesus comes to the house and raises her to new life. Little girl, arise. Same words he uses with Lazarus. Arise, calls by name, arise. And they listen. Right? Jesus is the one who's already defeated death. We see it in his own life. We see it in the lives of those around him. And one day we're all going to hear him call our name out too. Have you pondered that reality? Have you, have you taken time to actually put on this truth as a weapon in your, in your gear when you're going to battle? That death has nothing on you. That Jesus has already declared the day is coming when those who are dead in Christ will be raised. In fact, they'll be raised first. Right? When the last trumpet call comes and Jesus starts to descend, all of a sudden, all those who've died in Christ are going to be rise, raised to new life and they're going to meet him in the air. And then those who are alive in Christ are going to meet them there. And they're all going to come down and a new heaven and a new earth are going to be created. That's the end of the story. If that's the end of the story, my goodness, does that change our perspective in the middle part that we happen to be living in right now? Therefore, everything we just said was introduction, by the way. Everything we just said. None of it's new. Some of you are like, oh, I've heard this before. And you started to drift. I saw you. It's okay. I love you still. I love you still. But don't miss this part. Therefore, because all this is true, therefore, we groan. We groan. We don't walk through life triumphantly thinking there's nothing can hurt me. I'm going to be okay. I'm never going to feel pain. That's what it means to be a Christian. Wrong. We walk through life triumphantly knowing that in this life we will have trouble, but our Jesus has overcome the world. And I love the fact that this is in the Bible, friends. Because that again shows us the heart of our Abba Father, that he gets us. Because none of us like to suffer. And none of us like when death comes and robs us of those that we love. And our God says, here's what we do when that happens. We groan. We groan. That's a deep heartache. Down to the bottom we groan. Because something is terribly wrong with this world. And when we groan, please don't miss this, we align our hearts with God's. We're not railing against him. He's the one who's groaning first. As Romans 8 tells us, the Holy Spirit himself groans because creation is fallen and is aching for that to be renewed and remade. It says creation itself groans to be remade. And we with the Holy Spirit join in that chorus of groaning. It's how we train our hearts to be attuned with the song of heaven. But friends, it's not just training. It's also warfare. 
It's how we battle. The groaning is rebellion against the prince of this world, against sin and death. It is rebellion that says this isn't normal. This isn't okay. This isn't the way it was supposed to be. And it's not going to last. When we groan, we are singing the song of heaven. We are aching for what Jesus ached for in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was groaning and sweating drops of blood because of the suffering that he was willingly enduring, deciding for himself that even though the pain of this was more than he wanted, more than he could have ever imagined, he was going to trust the will of his father no matter what because he already knew the story. In fact, he'd been telling it to his disciples the entire time they were walking towards Jerusalem. The Son of Man must be betrayed and handed over and killed and on the third day rise again. He knew the will of his Father, just like we know the will of our Father. The entire beginning part of this sermon was the will of our Father, talking about suffering and its purpose and even victory in the face of death. We know it. But do we like it? No. And can I tell you, Jesus didn't like suffering either. Isn't that awesome? Isn't it a beautiful thing when you realize our God is not calling us to pretend like it feels okay? He's not calling us to be stoic in the face of suffering and death. He's the one who's leading the song. He's singing first. This is not okay. This hurts more than I thought. But we're trusting you that the God who can take the worst moment in the history of the world, the cross of Jesus Christ, and turn it into the best moment in the history of the world, the cross of Jesus Christ and his empty tomb, that that same God can take every ounce of suffering and death and loss in our lives and do the exact same thing. Redemption. Redeeming them all. Friends, that's what we're talking about when we say, hey, come and enter into this season called Lent with us. Come fast and pray with us. Why? What, what is Lent? Lent is uh, the church recapitulating, living into the story of Jesus in the, in the wilderness for 40 days. 40 days, which is why Lent is 40 days. And what did Jesus do in the wilderness? He fasted and he prayed. Or to put it differently, he willingly walked towards death. When you fast for any amount of time, you're denying your physical body what it needs for life. When you fast for 40 days, you're pretty darn close to death. When we enter into this fasting, we're entering into the story that says that man was not made for bread alone, but to live by every word that proceeds at the mouth of God. Or to put it differently, we're entering into the story that says through fasting and prayer, we learn to hear him differently. Our hearts grow for him. Our, inti our intimacy deepens with him. And from that place, we can face any temptation, even the one when the enemy of our soul comes to Jesus and says after 40 days of fasting, why is your father making you so hungry? Don't you want some bread? You don't think that was tempting <laughs> after 40 days of fasting? We enter into the story of Lent 
and into the practice of fasting and prayer so that we can willingly rebel against the enemy of our souls who wants to say, you were made for bread. Satisfy your hunger. Whatever your hunger is, if it's bread, if it's relationships, if it's money, if it's power. By the way, Jesus was tempted with all of those. Whatever it is, satisfy your hunger. That's how you're going to find fulfillment. Escape the suffering. Don't go towards the cross. Find a different way. And at every point, what does Jesus say? No, not my will, but yours be done, O oh God. He shows us the purpose of fasting and prayer in the wilderness. It's why we do Lent. It's because it's there that we learn to fight for our own souls. It's there that we learn to hear the voice of God differently than we did before. And the voice of the enemy we can recognize more clearly than ever before. And resist his temptations even when death starts approaching. Beloved, do you understand that when we groan, we're battling for our own souls? But it's not just our souls we're battling for. As again highlighted by the cinematic masterpiece Karate Kid, which you, if you haven't seen, you should see. Mr. Miyagi, at the end of that movie, towards the end of that movie, what does he do? Do you remember? He has Daniel cleaning everything in his house, waxing his car, and then when he, he turns to Daniel and he says what? Pick. Pick. And Daniel gets to take one of the cars. And then if you've watched some of the Cobra Kai series, you know that it's not just one of the cars. It's all of the cars. And the house. The deck. The fence. It's all Daniel's. Mr. Miyagi gives it all to him. When Daniel thought that all he was doing was being used and abused by the master. What the master was doing the entire time was training Daniel for battle and allowing Daniel to actually fight for his own inheritance. Let me, let me read it to you the way Romans puts it. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. We're family because of what Jesus has done. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then what? Heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided. We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you hear it? As we willingly enter into the suffering, wax on, wax off, paint the fence, sand the floor. We are working for an inheritance that will not perish because it is kept in heaven for us. That is first and foremost him. But do you know who else it is? Us. It's us. Mr. Miyagi was working for Daniel, laboring for Daniel, sacrificing for Daniel because he loved him. And the entire time, he was making Daniel like himself and giving Daniel everything he had. That's the heart of our master, our father in heaven. 
The question for us to wrestle with today, friends, is where do you need to groan? We need to agree with God against suffering and death and rebel against the prince of this world. Where do you need to hear the spirit singing the same song? I'm sure the Lord has already brought something to your mind this morning. A place, a person, a relationship, a loss where you've really wrestled and struggled. For some of us, that you're thinking to yourself right now, well, I've already dealt with that. Well, please let me encourage you. If the Lord has brought it to your mind, you've not already dealt with that. There's more. And he wants to set you free from that. And it's okay. Because when you truly love someone, the love goes deep. When you lose them, the pain goes deep. And there's more to process there, friends. Where do you need to hear the Spirit singing the same song? And then where do you need to willingly invest in your own inheritance? One of the hardest ways for us to willingly do this, willingly invest in our own inheritance, one of the most difficult places to do that is in relationships. Because we hurt one another. Because we live into the narrative that tells the other person when we're hurting them that we're not worth loving. It's what God did here all day on Ash Wednesday. I can't tell you how many people I heard as they came through on Ash Wednesday wrestling with bitterness and finding release, relief, freedom to actually lay it down. The lie of sin, is it tells us, well, that person hurt me and they don't deserve it. And the right question to ask at that point is, who does? Does anyone who hurt you deserve to be forgiven? Does anyone who hurt you deserve to be forgiven? The answer is no. They've hurt you. So you are justified in your anger. But here's the problem. When we stay in our anger, or to use the biblical phrase from Ephesians, when the sun goes down on our anger, that anger transforms from a right anger over being hurt to a bitterness that only continues to hurt me. No one deserves to be forgiven, but everyone needs to be forgiven. Or to put it in the, in the language of the gospel, everyone in here is worth being forgiven. Who's in your life right now that you're struggling to believe that about? They're worth being forgiven. What is that relationship? Doing that good work, friends, is how you fight for your own heart and for theirs. It's how you fight for your inheritance because they're part of your inheritance and you're part of theirs. It's also how you fight against the biggest enemy when it comes to death, which is fear. First John says, there is no fear in perfect love because perfect love casts out fear. And fear has to do with punishment. What John is letting us in on right there is this reality. When we live our lives harboring sin or bitterness, and all of a sudden, death comes knocking on the door. 
we're going to be afraid because we know something's wrong in here. We know it, and we've not dealt with it. But when we choose to do the work, wax on, wax off, of actually forgiving and blessing and being reconciled where possible, suddenly our hearts change because there's no more room for bitterness. All there is is love, perfect love, his love that drives out all fear. I want us to pray together and I want to ask God to just reveal to us where these places are in our own lives and then I want to encourage you to welcome him in. Right? Like, what do we talk about here all the time? We're not an audience, we're an army. We're God's family. He's commissioned us to live into this truth. So let's do that together right now. Lord Jesus, we've been talking about you this whole time and we trust you've been here. We know that you're here. We've experienced your presence this morning, both in your consistent presence, Lord. You say we're always carrying around in us your Holy Spirit. We are your temple. We've also tasted of your manifest presence, Lord, of the way that you love to come and just pour out your spirit in love and joy and peace, but also in conviction where we are stuck, giving us eyes to see that so that you can also comfort and pour out love and forgiveness and healing. So God, I pray right now that for every person gathered in this place and those that are online with us, that, Lord, you would come and meet us. That you would show each of us, Lord, where we are stuck in fear because there's stuff going on in us that we, we know we need to deal with and we haven't. I pray that you'd bring to mind, Lord, whether it's sorrow and, and pain and grief because of lost loved ones where we've, just pushed it down and pretended like it's okay when it's not. Would you help us to be honest about that with you right now? And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak to each of us what you would have us hear. What do you want to say to each person? Lord, please be specific so that they know it's you know that you know. I pray for each person in this place, Lord, that is stuck in bitterness and unforgiveness and relationships because we've been really hurt and that pain isn't okay, but neither is the bitterness. pray, Lord God, that you would speak to each of us this morning, what you would have us hear, the truth of your love and grace. Help us to hear that we are worth forgiving, and therefore they are worth forgiving. God, I pray that you'd give us a vision 
Would you show each of us, Lord, a little taste of heaven? <laughs> Who are the people that are going to be there? Lord, what are the faces that are going to welcome us? Help us to taste a little bit of the joy that you've prepared for us, this eternal weight of glory that far surpasses any suffering, any trial, any struggle. Would you pour that out on us right now, Lord? That we would find ourselves this morning, Lord Jesus, standing on a firm foundation. For you're the one who's taught us from the beginning that even when the waves come crashing down, even the biggest wave, our biggest enemy death, when it comes crashing down, if we build our house, our lives on the rock, the rock that you are, that is your teaching, your living, your life, and your leadership, if we build our, our lives on that rock, nothing will shake us. We declare that truth, Lord, over our own minds and hearts today, over our relationships, we ask that you'd help us to live into with every ounce of our beings, Lord. Thank you that when we ask for forgiveness, your answer is always yes. Thank you that, Lord, when we ask to come close to you and that you would draw near to us, your answer is always yes. So come, Lord. Continue that good work, not just this morning, but all day and all week, that, Lord, we would taste and see your glory the world would see your glory, that lives would change because you're changing us. Have your way. In Jesus' name we pray.